and then I'll be focusing in more detail on verses 15 and 16. This great letter about the church. Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16. Reading the ESV version. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he descended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. A man named, named Steve left his wife and family and later received this letter from his daughter who used a car wreck as a metaphor for how she and her mom and brother were feeling. He picked up this piece of paper and read these words, Dear Daddy, it's late at night and I'm sitting in the middle of my bed writing to you. Dad, I realize you're dating someone else and I know you and mom may never get together. That's terribly hard to accept, especially knowing that you may never come back home or be an everyday dad to me and Brian again, but at least I want you to understand what's going on in our lives. Dad, I feel like our family has been riding in a nice car for a long time. You know, the kind that you always like to have as a company car. It's the kind that has every extra inside and not a scratch on the outside. But over the years, it's developed some problems. It's smoking a lot, the wheels wobble, the seat covers are ripped. The car has been really hard to drive or ride in because of all the shaking and squeaking. But it's still a great automobile, or at least it could be with a little work. I know it could run for years. Since we got the car, Brian and I have been in the back seat while you and mom have been up front. We really feel secure with you driving and mom beside you. But last month, mom was at the wheel. It was nighttime and we had just turned the corner near our house. Suddenly we all looked up and saw another car out of control heading straight for us. Mom tried to swerve out of the way, but the other car still smashed into us. The impact set us flying, sent us flying off the road and crashing into a lamppost. The thing is, Dad, just before being hit, we could see that you were the one driving the car. And we saw something else. Sitting next to you was another woman. It was such a terrible accident that we were all rushed to the emergency ward. But when we asked where you were, no one knew. We're still not really sure 
where you are or if you were hurt or if you need help. Mom was really hurt. She was thrown into the steering wheel and broke several ribs. One of them punctured her lungs and almost pierced her heart. When the car wrecked, the back door smashed into Brian. He was covered with cuts from the broken glass and he shattered his arm, which is now in a cast, but that's not the worst. He's still in so much pain and shock that he doesn't want to talk or play with anyone. As for me, I was thrown from the car. I was struck out in the cold for a long time with my right leg broken. As I lay there, I couldn't move and didn't know what was wrong with mom and Brian. I was hurting so much that I couldn't help them. There have been times since that night when I wondered if any of us would make it. Even though we're getting a little better, we're still in the hospital. The doctors say I'll need a lot of therapy on my leg, and I know they can help me get better. But I wish it was you who was helping me instead of them. The pain is so bad, but what's even worse is that we all miss you so much. Every day, we wait to see if you're going to visit us in the hospital, and every day you don't come. I know it's over, but my heart would explode with joy if somehow I could look up and see you walk into my room. At night, when the hospital is really quiet, they push Brian and me into Mom's room, and we talk about you. We talk about how much we love driving with you and how we wish you were with us now. Are you all right? Are you hurting from the wreck? Do you need us like we need you? If you need me, I'm here, and I love you. Your daughter, Kimberly. I knew I'd have trouble getting through that. But I wanted to read it because I wanted us to see the pain that is going on in household after household after household because of what amounts to the failure of a man. We're not here to blame him, but to think about what's happening. Consider the epidemic of father absence in our culture. In America, 36 million children suffer from father absence. As I mentioned earlier in Sunday school, that's half of the children under 18. Physical father absence affects 24 million of them. uh, uh, And emotional absence affects another 12 million. So that 50% of the children who put their head on a pillow tonight in America have no meaningful relationship with the father. 60% of America's rapists grew up in homes without fathers. 72% of adolescent murderers grew up without fathers. Children who demonstrate violent behavior in a public setting in school or daycare are 11 times more likely to have been raised in a home without a father. 33% of all children in America are born out of wedlock. A girl desperately needing affection and love who goes in a lot of wrong places to find it and then is often abandoned by the man who got her pregnant. And father absence is just one of many social problems in America behind which is the failure of a man. James Dobson writes this, the Western world stands at a great crossroads in its history. It's my opinion that, the very, that our very survival as a people will depend upon the presence or absence of masculine leadership in millions of homes. 
I believe with everything within me that husbands hold the keys to the preservation of the family. Now, the men who are failing don't want to fail. They're not intending to fail. They, Steve didn't walk down the wedding aisle and, and plan at that point in time to walk away from his marriage. No father who holds his newborn son or daughter plans to walk out of his or her life later on. What is it that's going on in this culture? What is happening? Let me share a couple more statistics with you. There are about 113 million men in America 15 years or older. Of those, 69 million claim to have made a profession of faith in Christ. I'm sorry, have, have not made any profession of faith in Christ, 69 not. 44 million have made a profession of faith in Christ. Of those 44 million, 6 million though, only 6 million have any exposure during the week to any discipleship ministry or program. And, and in this, these are Barna statistics, uh, the definition of discipleship involvement was anything you did other than come on Sunday morning to church. If you came to Sunday school, if you're in a home group, if you meet with a guy for breakfast, uh, if you go on a men's retreat, if you do anything other than come to church, that would be discipleship. Six million out of 44 million. Now, think about that six million compared to the 113 million men in America. That's one in 18 men in America is learning to be a godly man. Now, think about 18 guys going down to a baseball park to play baseball, and only one of the 18 has ever seen a baseball game and has any idea how to play it. What would happen? I mean, they'd be chucking balls at each other, throwing their mitts up in the air, throwing their hats, sword fighting with their bats, maybe. Utter chaos on, on, the, on the field. If we want to know why there's utter chaos in our culture and in our homes, it's because only one in 18 men has seen how to, and is learning to become a godly man. Now, the church is not succeeding at discipling men. And we want to, for that reason, take a look, all of us together. Like I said, you guys are exemplary in, in, in moving out ahead of many other churches. But let's take a fresh look at what the, the Bible itself, the, the letter that Paul wrote about the church, and what it says about how we make disciples. And, so, and that's all through the verses that I read to you, but it, it, it's focused in the last two verses. And so I noticed there's a place for an outline for the sermon, and I want to look at the purpose of God in verses 15, verse 15b, which is growing up into Christ, who is the head. And then we're going to see the process that he's ordained, which is speaking the truth in love, verse 15a. And then we're going to look at the parts that he requires when each part does its work in verse 16. So let's dig into those verses in a little more detail. First, the purpose of God, verse 15b, and that is to grow up into Christ who is the head. That's, of course, growing up is maturity. It's spiritual maturity. It's being increasingly surrendered to Jesus Christ and, and seeking to implement his agenda in every sphere of my life, starting with my heart surrender and moving out to my attitudes and my closest relationships and, and, and moving out into the culture to the uttermost parts of the earth. Uh, 
Uh, a disciple is one whose affections, the affections of whose heart have been won away from the idols that claim them and, and, and have been turned to Jesus Christ as, as the one we want to follow, the one we want to please. Not perfectly, of course, but increasingly surrendered to him. Loving God with all of our heart and our neighbor as ourselves. That's just a, a sort of different a snapshots of, of what a disciple looks like. Paul is saying in this text, growing up into Christ the head, he's describing the purpose of the church. And, and he's using that language for what, of course, Jesus himself said in the Great Commission in Matthew 8, 28, when he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. A familiar verse, I'm sure, to you. Make disciples, and Jesus says, okay, church, this is your mission. This is the target on the wall for you. Go and make disciples. Mathetes, the word from which we get in mathematics. It means a learner. And, but the type of learner is, is interesting because of the use of this word in, in the culture, because the culture had, had to do really with being a follower of a master and someone who imitated his master's way of life. And so this very word has much to do with following the pattern of Jesus, imitating Jesus is to be his disciple. But notice that Jesus gives us one target, go and make disciples. Now the problem is that we've got lots of responsibilities in the church that are sort of a subset of that one target. We've got to feed the poor. We've got to share the gospel. We've got to send out missionaries. We heard about that. We've got to build godly families and raise dollars for various projects. And we've got to instruct our children. We've got lots of activities. But here's, here's the point. These are great activities that sometimes can cause us to lose sight of the activity. For example, if our, and so our aim could become really behavior modification instead of heart-transformed disciples. And let me share, it may sound like it's semantics, but there's a big difference. We can, we can make it our aim, if we want to change behavior, to raise funds. Uh, and, and then if we do that, we can manipulate and we can produce a donor. But if our target is to make a disciple, then we will be working towards the heart of a person being changed to love Christ more and love others more, and he will give generously out of the overflow of a heart that is the disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, or in, 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 in youth ministry, and, and I'm sure Dave gets this exactly right, but we can, we can make it our aim to, to, to change our kids' behavior and don't do drugs and don't have sex before marriage, or we can make it our aim to build disciples who love Christ and who out of love for him, out of the overflow of their love for him, offer their bodies to God as a living sacrifice. So it's kind of important whether we keep the focus straight. And Jesus said the focus is to be on making disciples. It's interesting because this is such a human tendency. Peter Drucker has observed this tendency in business so that we get busy doing lots of other things. And, and, and Drucker will meet with, used to meet with people and say this, look, there are only two questions in business. There are only two. The first is, what is your business? 
And the second is, how's business? What is our business? It's making disciples. How's business? With men? Uh, not so good. Six million out of that 44. And yet, when I think about Jesus, I go, Jesus built his church by discipling men. By the way, the, the statistics show that far more women are involved in discipleship of some form than men. We're especially struggling to disciple men today. And yet that's the way Jesus built his church, expecting them in turn to disciple their, their families and, and, and to get their families involved with the rest of the body. Um, and we who understand the overview of scripture understand a covenantal mindset uh, that, that if we, as I said earlier, if we help men get it right, everybody wins. They're wives. Wives are natural responders and the impact that a great dad can have on a, on a child. We're, we're dealing in men's ministry with a lot of men who struggle with the wounds that they carry from deficiencies in their father's son. I, I believe that God has, not because we deserve it, has given men a role as sort of representing God in our children's lives, especially in those concrete years when they don't really, they can't really constant, uh, uh, really can't um, understand the concept uh, of, of a, a God that is not physical. And so God, so a dad has that role. Um, and so we, we're finding that, that people have wounds, women too, from, from deficiencies and deficits that are in there because they, their father just didn't know how to get it right. There's such a huge problem there. But Jesus built the church by establishing and discipling men. And I look at the church today and I go, are we doing that? I mean, I look at budgets and, and, and I look at, we, we, we have, and, and I love Dave, and I was a youth pastor. This is not personal, but we got a youth pastor, and we got a college pastor. We got a worship pastor in the bigger churches, and we got a counseling pastor, and, uh, you know, uh, we got an administrative pastor. There's, is anybody on the staff there trying to get men discipled and move them down the pathway? I thought that's what Jesus did. Now, it's, it's not contradictory. Obviously, the elders and, and the, the teaching elders are, are involved in discipleship, but somehow I think we've gotten things upside down at this time in our history in the church. And the result of that failure to focus on discipling men in general is this kind of a picture. Another study that was done, for every 10 men in the church, the average church, nine will have kids who leave the church. Eight will not find their jobs satisfying. Six will pay the monthly minimum on their credit cards. Five have a major problem with pornography. Four will get divorced, affecting a million children per year. This is within the church, at least the outward visible church of Jesus Christ. Only one will have a biblical world and life view. All 10 will struggle to balance family and church. Maybe we need to listen to Peter Drucker. What's your business, church? discipleship that's the purpose and especially discipling men making sure that's taken care of we see that in the text the purpose then what is the process that God has ordained for this and the answer I think might surprise you because uh, if you're all like me for many years I thought the word disciple basically meant mentor 
I mean, hey, I married a woman that was trained through the Navigators, which is a great mentoring ministry. And I read Dawson Trotman's book, Born to Reproduce, and, and uh, I read Coleman's book, and uh, uh, Master Plan of Evangelism. And when I hear, you know, that Bill is discipling Fred, I always think of the multiplication men- uh, uh, method of making disciples. In fact, that's what I think. Okay, that's the way you disciple. You multiply. So, uh, you know, the pastor disciples two men for two elders for two years, and then two years, uh, at the end of that two years, they disciple two other elders, and you do that, and, 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 uh, and that's the way that, that discipleship happens. But that is... That is not what the scripture teaches about how discipleship happens. That is not the process. I, first of all, I've never seen that, other, other than maybe Randy Pope, <laughs> I've never seen that work in a church. 98% of the pastors and elders that I talk with would say they don't have the gift of mentoring. Uh, but secondly, that's not what the text says. Um, but thirdly, after four years, of, of mentoring in this situation where the pastor, you know, mentors two guys who turn around and mentor two other guys. At the end of four years, you've got the pastor and those six guys. What about the other 75 men in the church? What's been happening with them for 75 years? You see, the multiplication method is a great method, but that's not normative. That is not the normative method of making disciples. Rather, the process is described in Ephesians 4.15. And what we're going to realize is that mentoring is a subset of the normative process. That's why it works. That's why it's so powerful. And if you have mentors, go to it. You've got those with mentoring gifts. But the principle is speaking the truth in love, we will grow up into him. It is connection to one another in the body that involves speaking and loving. Jesus did follow this mentoring process. He discipled the 12, but here's the point. He still is discipling his members of his, uh, you know, uh, his followers, and he's doing it just as he did before through his body. Before, he did it through his earthly physical body. Now, he does it through physical bodies just like he did before, but those bodies are yours and mine. So it's not that Bill is discipling Fred to be like Bill No, no, no. Jesus is discipling all of us to be like Jesus, but he does it through us connecting with each other. And sometimes that's an older, mature, more mature Christian, and sometimes it's a young, you know, with younger, and sometimes it's more peer. That's why mentoring is so powerful. It's life on life. But but it's not mentoring that is normative. Speaking the truth, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, that's the way that we grow up into Christ the head. So Let's zero in on that a little bit more. Speaking the truth, talking about how God's word is applying to our everyday lives. Speaking the truth. In love describes a commitment to one another as a member of the body of Christ, to listen to each other's struggles, to celebrate each other's victories, to encourage and challenge one another, to meet each other's practical needs, all those one another commands, to confess our sins to one another. The process is connection. That's that's why the heart of our ministry, Forging Bonds, is about getting men connected. That's the way we grow. Now, here's the problem with men. Men default to staying superficial in our relationships with other men. We automatically want to talk about work and the ball game and our truck. 
We, we, you know, life is mostly about the below the, you know, we're like an iceberg, that's the visible part. But our lives are really about what's below the surface. 19, the guys heard me say this, 19 out of 20 Christian men in America have no best friend. They have no one who knows what's going on bef- below the waterline. They're fighting their spiritual battles alone. They're not connected in the body. So how can we expect them to be growing as disciples when they're isolated? When God gives us the pattern for how disciples grow and it's connection, speaking the truth to one another in love. Now, some of you might be sitting there, as, as at least one person was, saying, wait a second, I, you know, my connection as a guy to the body is through my wife. And I would say, that's great. That, that cannot possibly be what Paul's talking about in this text. And the reason is because we know that in a few verses, he's going to talk about your relationship with your wife in Ephesians 5. So he's going to talk about it then. That's not what he's referring to here. He's talking about connection to other members of the body. And in that culture, that meant men connecting with men and women connecting with women. And that means that in this culture as well. And Jesus modeled that. His greenhouse for growing disciples was not individual relationships with all the disciples. He didn't meet with Peter for breakfast Monday and Andrew for lunch on Tuesday, and it's all vertical. No, 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 he called his followers into a band of brothers. Connection, speaking the truth. That's what Jesus did with those guys. To follow Jesus Christ is to be devoted to him vertically and to be devoted horizontally to connection in the body of Christ. Are you connected in the body? Now that's not easy. I mean, just I've been hammering the guys. Man, the guys would love to have a best friend, as I, as I told them over the weekend. They'd, they'd love to go play golf on a Saturday with a buddy. Many guys deny themselves a friendship with a guy because they're so busy trying to love their wives and they're, they're trying to use their gifts and be faithful at work. And there's so much responsibility in Northern Virginia with regard to the work world. I want to just say to you this, you cannot live the Christian life alone. God never designed you to be able to handle your spiritual battles by yourself. A, a disconnected Christian is an oxymoron. The reason men's ministry is so vital today is that what men's ministry is about is trying to help men build those connections. You don't just unzip your life and start talking about your struggles with a guy. That doesn't happen. There's a process that needs to happen, and guys build relationships initially shoulder to shoulder, and we need to do things together and gradually get to know each other and gradually find a couple guys that we can have that kind of connection with. So that, but that's what men's ministry is all about, is helping bring guys into that kind of a connection where, the, where there's a growing commitment to each other and a willingness to speak the truth, and speak the truth in love. That's the way the body is built up. Purpose of God, make disciples. Process of God, connection in the body. Let's look at the parts that he requires. Verse 16, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that the, it builds itself up in love. God, you know, Paul, the Lord himself couldn't be more clear. Every member of the body. 
not just the elders, not just the deacons, not just mentors. Every member connected. Every member using his gifts. Uh, Bud Wilkinson, uh, as a football coach, on one occasion was involved with uh, the uh, president's physical fitness program years ago, and uh, he was going to be in Dallas, and uh, there was a young... uh, uh, interviewer that was uh, on one of the local TV stations, young reporter who was going to interview him, and this young reporter kind of wanted to bring in the idea of football and kind of impress Bud Wilkinson. And, and so as he was talking with him, uh, this young reporter said, now, what would you say is the contribution of modern football to physical fitness? And Bud Wilkinson immediately said, absolutely nothing. And so this re- reporter was just stunned, and he said, well, w- would you like to el- elaborate on that? And Wilkinson said, certainly, I define football as 22 men on the field desperately needing rest and 40,000 people in the stands desperately needing exercise. (laughs) And that is a description of a lot of churches. Now, I know it's less likely here because I've been a church planner. It takes a lot of people using their gifts, but I want to challenge you. Have you been staying in the stands a little bit too much lately? Do you you realize this body is hurt? You have something very valuable to give. No matter how young in the faith you may be, no matter how much you feel unworthy and you're so screwed up. That's not what the Bible says. Every member. And and if you don't participate, if you're not connected, if, if you're not finding a way to use your gifts and discovering them, the other people in this room suffer. I know you're not intending that, but that's what this scripture says. The men's ministry is looking, some guys have moved away, the men's ministry itself is, is really looking for some guys that want to help build a strong disciple ministry that's affirming masculinity, that's showing our boys in the church what it means to be a godly man. And if that passion just touches you, please talk to Dave or Dave or Bill. Um, because that, but that's just one of the many ministries in the church that, that, is, that is so important. So men's ministry then is really, it's, it's simply a bunch of guys that their passion is, is, is helping men move down that discipleship path. And it's, it's, it's using their gifts to put in place the things that will help that, whether it was the retreat we just had or a softball league or a seminar, or whether it's linking up some, some brothers, older brothers maybe in Christ that are in a mentoring kind of thing, uh, whether it's getting businessmen together to talk about how they you know, implement uh, biblical principles in the, in the workplace. I mean, speaking the truth in love. That's, you know, whatever, whatever happens. Um, Maybe it's having a guy that, that, that is really good at praying with his wife, stand up at some breakfast and talk about how he pulled that off, you know. Whatever it is, but it's, it's helping men walk down that, that path toward discipleship using whatever gifts God has here. Men's ministry is not the most, uh, it's not the only, uh, certainly, uh, ministry, youth ministry, having a passion for teenagers. There's nothing greater than a teenager. M- women's ministry. My, my wife just got back from a retreat over this weekend at McLean. So many other ways to use your gift. Reaching out to the lost, being involved in missions, lots of ways. But I do want to say this. Is, it, is anything more important than, than men being discipled? 
and I want to ask you this question to, to zero in on that. Wouldn't you agree that in order to make the world right, we need to make churches right? And wouldn't you agree that in order to make churches right, we need to make families right? And wouldn't you agree that in order to make families right, we need to make marriages right? And wouldn't you agree that in order to make marriages right, we need to make men right? Is anything more important than discipling men? Let's pray. Father, I know that my lens is all about men's ministry and that's, that's not the only game in town. I just pray that this challenge will be used by your spirit to help us all think about the church, the condition of the church, and to renew our passion to make disciples using our gifts in whatever way that can be. Particularly, I pray that you'd call more and more uh, men to uh, a passion to see us passing on a godly vision of strong manhood to our, the next generation. Lord, I thank you that, that the women that I know are the most adamant fans of what I do around the country. They want strong men, strong godly men who lead, but who lead tenderly knowing their needs. Lord, thanks for this time together and the great things you're doing here at Potomac Hills. For your glory and in your name we pray. Amen.